Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 63, We Gotta Get Out of This Place, to discuss some chemical warfare of the second half of the 20th century. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. When we last left off on chemical weapons of the 20th century, back in episode 39, I mentioned the delousing compound and pesticide called Cyclone B, used by the Nazis to murder vast swaths of people in the Nazi gas chambers. The only businessman who was executed for crimes against humanity was Bruno Tesch, head of the Degussa company, which sold the chemical to the Nazis willingly. This seems a fitting point to call in today's guest, Mara W. Cohen Ioannidis, Jewish Studies Scholar and Faculty in the English Department at Missouri State University, to discuss an intersection between chemistry and 20th century literature. The writings of Italian-Jewish Holocaust survivor and chemist, Primo Levi. Stephen, thank you so much for inviting me today to talk about this intersection of chemistry and literature. I really think people believe writers live in a vacuum and are never in touch with reality and that really isn't true. You specifically asked me to talk about Primo Levi, who is both a chemist and a writer. He grew up in Turin, Italy, and was a brilliant student. Because he was the only Jew in his classes, he was bullied at school. While he was studying at the University of Turin, the Italian government allied itself with the Nazi Germany, and so Primo had a hard time finding someone to be his thesis advisor. And when he graduated, he had a difficult time finding a job. He did find a job, using a fake name and falsified papers. He eventually helped create a partisan group in the Alps, but he was arrested with this group in 1943. As a Jew, he was sent to an internment camp until the region was annexed by Germany, and then he was sent to Auschwitz. He was liberated by the Russians in January of 1945. After the war, he got a job at the DuPont paint factory outside Turin. He also spoke to people about his experiences in Auschwitz and began writing poetry. Eventually, he wrote his stories down. Published in 1947 was the book If This Is a Man, or in English, Survival in Auschwitz. His work as a chemist, resulted in his getting a job with an international firm, and whenever he was sent to Germany, he insisted on wearing short sleeves, so his Auschwitz tattooed number was visible to everyone he worked with. He wrote science fiction under the pen name Diamano Malabello that became quite popular. You can find those works under the English title The Sixth Day and Other Tales. I want to focus on his memoir, The Periodic Table. What a perfect name for a chemist to use. 
It is really a series of short essays about his life, mostly before and after the Second World War. The Royal Institution in 2006 voted it the best science book ever written. Science book ever written, written by a scientist. How amazing. How could I be on the history of chemistry and not talk about a book titled The Periodic Table? There is so much to be fascinated by about this book. It is a memoir by a man who lives under a false identity before World War II and then reassembles his life after the war. The issues he discusses are an important part of understanding how social norms are so easily manipulated by politics and fear. But we are here to talk about the chemistry. Primo divides his memoir into 21 chapters, and each chapter is titled with the name of an element on the periodic table. These elements are not randomly assigned, but thematic to the chapter. For example, the first chapter is titled Argon. As we know, Argon is a noble or inert gas. He describes his ancestors in this chapter as, quote, noble, inert, and rare. Their history is quite poor when compared to that of other illustrious Jewish communities, unquote. He could not be more obvious about his plans for this chapter's title. There are 20 such chapters. For example, chapter 4, iron, is a solid and stone-like material, is about mountain climbing with Primo's friend Sandro. Sandro is also solid. And the chapter ends with the looming war, whose machinery is made from iron. Chapter 8, mercury, is both about mercurial people and cinnabar a red sulfide of mercury. Chapter 12 is entitled Chromium and focuses on covering up. People are covering up what happened during the war and how his employers used chromate as a varnish. If you follow what Primo is doing, it is very, very clever and very subtle. He has used his knowledge of chemistry to derive his writing, and that is so powerful, so unusual, just you can understand why this was selected as such an important book. One doesn't have to be a chemist to write fiction. That includes chemistry. And so I had to uh, turn to another one of my favorite books, People of the Book by Geraldine Brooks, which is a fictionalized work about Andrea Pataki Hunt, and who works at the Cologne Institute of Conservation Sciences. She is a specialist in printing technologies and material chemistry. This is who the book is about. This is not the author. She does conservation work, and one of the pieces she worked on was the Sarajevo Haggadah. A Haggadah is a liturgy for the Jewish festival Passover, where the Exodus story is celebrated. The Sarajevo Haggadah is so named not because that was where it was penned, but that was where it was first seen by scholars. And it is this book about the work by Pataki Hunt that focuses on forensic science, uncovering what happened to this book, what the story is, since the book dates back to 1490. She uses her skills as a forensic scientist to uncover the vintage and kosher status of a wine stain the background, the biology and geography of a butterfly wing. 
and it is through this that Brooke's story develops. The science and the discoveries in this book are real. The people are fictional. For example, when a wine stain is discovered on the Sarajevo Hogeta, a minute sample is taken to a lab with a spectrometer, and Brooks describes the setting of the sample on the machine and what results would look like. The chemist, and here I quote, pointed to a tall spike. See that? That nice spike of absorbance there? That's protein. The conservationist and chemist then discussed that unlike most wine, which is clarified using egg whites, kosher wine is clarified with clay, so no protein exists in the wine. The specialist then notes, and again I quote, I've called up the library of all spectrometry we've done here. See that blue line? That's blood. That's the science. There's a good science in books everywhere. I think the takeaway from this discussion is that chemistry is not exclusive to academic or even nonfiction writing. A good writer does their research thoroughly and then crafts their story. Read carefully, and you too can learn some chemistry. Thanks. Let's continue with another substance invented in World War II, but which didn't get much press until decades later. Louis Fieser, a famous organic chemist at Harvard University, with his wife Mary Fieser, also a chemist, wrote one of the best-known standard organic chemistry textbooks ever, which is now colloquially called Fieser and Fieser. He had just determined the molecular structure of vitamin K and was able to synthesize it. But now it was 1942, and Louis Fieser had been working with the U.S. military for over a year on secret projects for new chemical weapons. For many believed that the USA would enter this new war soon. At first, he was assigned to invent new natural explosives, and given three assistant researchers. Just as the project was about to start, the military changed its mind and reorganized to deal with poison gases. Fieser later commented, quote, Now, I didn't like the idea of poison gases, but I swallowed my pride and took the assignment, unquote. It took some time for proper safety hoods to be installed in the laboratories So there was a delay, in which Fieser became interested in incendiaries. These are substances that burn well and are designed to destroy buildings. They can be solids, liquids, or gels. In 1941, the U.S. military only had the compound called thermite, which was not particularly good. Thermite is a generic term for a mixture of some metal powder and a metal oxide. A famous one is the thermite reaction of iron oxide and aluminum powder, whose reaction releases a lot of heat, enough to weld railroad tracks. So Fieser wiggled out of the poison gas project by convincing the muckety-mucks that gelled fuels would be more effective. The test was to burn the incendiary inside a wooden frame, modeling a building, 
and weigh the frame's residue after combustion. The less frame was left, the better the incendiary. After much testing of various organic materials, the best he found was a mixture of naphthalene and palmitate in February 1942. It was seven times better than thermite, and he called the mixture napalm. We might even regard it as a reinvention of the ancient Greek fire, whose recipe was lost in early medieval times. He added to the napalm arsenal a timed fuse napalm bomb, a tiny napalm bomb to attach to bats to nest in enemy buildings, and a napalm explosive device with a match head on top, called the Harvard Candle. The U.S. military used napalm to great effect on Japan in World War II. The Greeks dropped napalm on enemies during the Civil War in the late 1940s. Even the United Nations forces used napalm in the Korean War, but it didn't engender much worry then. It was finally patented in 1952. Only when images of the horrific burns napalm inflicted on civilians became public. During the Vietnam War, did the use of napalm get criticized? And then the manufacturer of American napalm, Dow Chemical, was caught in the public eye with protests. This is an early example of public skepticism of the inevitable advances that chemical industries bring. Eventually, the United Nations approved Protocol Three in 1980. Which states that incendiaries used against crowds of civilians is a war crime. The USA only approved Protocol Three in 2009, with reservations. Now we go back to nerve gases, first invented in 1930s Nazi Germany. Called the G series after Germany. Another series of nerve agents was discovered in 1952 at the Porton Down Science Complex in the United Kingdom by Ranajit Ghosh at the ICI Company, also doing research on pesticides. ICI began marketing their new compound under the trade name Amiton as a pesticide. But withdrew it because it is so dangerous. These V-series agents are all organophosphate ester compounds. The V-series is named for venomous. Some of the better-known V-series compounds are VX, VE, VG, and VM. They are all viscous. Oily, thick liquids, so they don't evaporate well and remain in the environment. They even are difficult to wash off. One of these compounds, VX, can be stored as two reagents in two compartments in a bomb, and when they mix, they react to make VX. They can also be sprayed as an aerosol. Their effect is like the G series; they inhibit acetylcholinesterase. Which is an enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. Acetylcholine activates muscles, and the enzyme triggers the muscle to stop contracting. Therefore, the V series causes infinite, unending contraction of muscles. 
A few milliliters is all it takes, and they are odorless and tasteless. Actual use is known for decades. The UN says that Cuba used VX against Angolans in the 1980s. Some evidence exists for Saddam Hussein, Iraqi dictator, using VX against Kurds in 1988. The Aum Shinrikyo cult made VX in the mid 1990s and deployed it in Japan. A more recent use of VX was in 2017, when half brother of North Korean strongman Kim Jong Nam was assassinated in Kuala Lumpur Airport in Malaysia. The USA, UK, Russia, North Korea, and Syria have stockpiled V-series agents. The USA is known to have destroyed practically all its VX storage. Russia began destroying its stockpile, but most still appears to be in storage, undisposed of. We can return to the Vietnam War when the USA tried a defoliant chemical to remove shrubbery where enemies hid in the rural areas. The chemical mixture was half 2,4-D and half 2,4-5-T, each of which is a benzene ring with molecular bits hanging off. The drums the U.S. government stored the herbicide in were marked with orange, hence the mixture was called Agent Orange. There were other agents, including green, white, purple, and blue. Spraying began in 1961. And continued to 1971 over nearly two million hectares. The defoliant degraded over the course of weeks, but the real problem was a contaminant in the synthetic process, dioxin. Dioxin is a class of organic molecules, but here we speak of a specific dioxin, 2378 tetrachlorodibenzo-p dioxin, which is two benzene rings. With chlorine atoms attached, linked together with oxygen atoms, dioxin seems to be the most toxic of a variety of similar compounds, and even the industrial manufacturers of Agent Orange said they had no clue how toxic dioxin is. The problem with dioxin is that it lingers far longer than the main ingredients of Agent Orange, over a decade and perhaps two. Decomposition of dioxin is photosensitive, so below a certain depth, dioxin may last over a century in the soil. The environmental legacy of dioxin we may discuss further in a future episode. Another series of nerve agents were begun to be researched in the Soviet Union in the 1960s and 70s. They are now called Novichok nerve agents, Russian for newcomer. The idea was for them to be undetectable with NATO tests of the time, to sneak inside NATO protective wear, and get around loopholes in the Chemical Weapons Convention. There are supposedly five variants developed, but never deployed in a war. They are also apparently organophosphate compounds 
several or more times stronger than even VX. They were first recognized in the 1990s by Western intelligence. The Russians are known to have used Novichok on individual people since 1995. A famous incident was when a former Russian security agent, Sergei Skripal, and his daughter Yulia were poisoned with Novichok in 2018 in the English city of Salisbury. It was used again later in the year in Amesbury, England, against Charlie Rowley and Dawn Sturgis. The incidents caused a stir not only because of their use, but also because Russians were assassinating people in other countries, becoming international crises. In our next episode, we talk about fluorescence and phosphorescence, and the first commercially successful firm to market fluorescent paints. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast.